Hey there, this is John from pureandsimplebible.com. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm very grateful that you're with me today, and I'm thankful to be talking about the Bible once again. Now, I'm still out on the road, so I'm using my iPhone for my intros and outros, but I had the opportunity a few weeks ago to sit down with Aubrey Ballard and discuss what the New Testament has to say about drinking alcohol. And in fact, I'll spoil it right off the bat when I say what the New Testament says about abstaining from alcohol. And that means not just uh, avoiding getting drunk, but, but avoiding social drinking and just staying away from it 100%. Now today we're going to be talking about eight scriptures that are really worth considering for explaining why we should abstain from alcohol. And there's a Bible chain that you can look at on the website with this this podcast if you want to go there. And I invite you to consider that and consider these scriptures. Let's just jump right into it, shall we? Well, Aubrey, thank you for coming back to the studio with me. I'm grateful for this opportunity to study the Bible with you again. You suggested that maybe we should uh, spend some time studying on abstinence from alcohol. Uh, And that sermon comes from the Bible, pulling scriptures out and answering some common questions. And so that's kind of what I'd like to do today with you is uh, I'd like to first engage you in some of the scriptures on uh, abstinence from alcohol, and then also maybe consider some objections that people might raise, people who maybe uh, they think is wrong to get just flat out drunk, but maybe it's not so wrong to just, uh, you know, engage socially in drinking. So hopefully this will be an encouraging study for those who maybe this is a temptation or, or maybe they have a position that's different from what the Bible advocates and we can uh, maybe help some shine some light on it. So I hope to do that, Jonathan, because um, this command to you know abstain from alcohol and be sober-minded and, and temperate in all things is uh, just as important as any other Bible command, but you don't have to look far at all uh, to see the evils that alcohol has uh, brought to our society. The broken homes, you know, where where yeah. parents uh, are abandoning children or one another because of what alcohol has done. Homes that are broken because somebody was out on the road and driving under the influence and they, you know, happen to kill a member of another family and break up those homes as well. But even just spiritually, the concept of losing one's sobriety I think is, for me, one of the most convicting reasons why I abstain from alcohol is because I want to be sober-minded, as the Scriptures say. So why don't we jump straight into a passage? I'd like to maybe read it and then give you time to explain it to our audience. And uh, the first one I'd like to go to is 1 Peter 4, verse 3 and 4. And so it says there, For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. And in regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. Aubrey, when I look at that scripture, I see uh, a long list specifically uh, about our topic today, the idea of drunkenness, revelries and drinking parties. I'm wondering if you could maybe shed some light on this scripture for us. Well, the passage lists a lot of things that Christians 
may have done before they obeyed the gospel, but that they don't participate in anymore now that they're a disciple of Jesus Christ. And three of the things have to do with drinking alcohol. The first one, drunkenness, comes from a word that means an overflow or a surplus of, of wine. Okay. And so you would say this refers to a person who's an alcoholic. I mean, they have a drink to start their day, and during the day, um, they're addicted to alcohol. They, they drink, you know, all times during the day. Well, not everybody's like that, though, right? So maybe some people might claim, well, that's not me. Right. So what are these other two? Yeah, they might say as long as you stop short of that, then you're not disobeying the Bible command, you know, to refrain from drunkenness. But another word that's used here is revelries. Now, that word just means revel or carousal, but it also means feasts and drinking parties that are protracted till late at night and indulge in revelry. That's from Thayer in his definition. So this is talking about a person who drinks until they you know, become revelrous. I'm thinking about a person at a, a party who gets you know, loud and, and boisterous. And to an outsider, they might seem kind of obnoxious. But to someone who's um, under the influence with them, it may seem really amusing. But they get uh, loud and obnoxious mm-hmm. and they lose their inhibitions. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then the third one, drinking mm-hmm. parties. Uh, is that more like a social atmosphere? Yeah, Strong just defines this as a, a drinking bout. And uh, in Trench, and his work on synonyms, he defines it as the drinking bout, the banquet, the symposium. But he has a, a very important a caveat here. He says it's not of necessity excessive, but given opportunity for excess. Oh, okay. So that's key because this word itself is referring to someone who simply has a drink. It might be at a, a cocktail party or a high school party or, or wherever it might be. But it's listed separately from the person who right. uh, became revelrous right. earlier and also separately from someone who's an addict. So since we're talking about someone who simply has you know, a, a martini or, uh, at the end of the day or a glass of wine at supper, uh, this is a passage that really needs to be considered. Right. So whenever I look at this then, um, you know, first this passage is teaching that we're not to be addicted to alcohol, but then we're also not to just to get uh, drunk at a party and get really rowdy. And third, uh, that really we're not to engage in it in a social way where even like you said, it, it may be a, a glass of something at dinner or uh, just casually drinking at a party. It seems like uh, the, the scripture suffices, you know, First Peter uh, suffices to, to give us proper instruction on how we're supposed to act because it brings up that these were how we used to act before we were Christians, talking to an audience that at one time engaged in this behavior, but now we put on Christ. And so technically, uh, you know, we could end the podcast there because one scripture, it should be enough. But we'd like to give an abundance of them just to continue this concept of what First Peter's talking about. So we've, we've kind of jumped into the deep end of the pool right off the bat. Let's maybe go to a, a different scripture and, and, and look what it has to say. Uh, look with me in Luke 12, verse 45 and 46. And I'll read it and then give you a chance to explain it. It says, uh, Jesus says, But if that servant says in his heart, My master is delaying in his coming, and begins to beat the male and female servants, and to eat and drink and be drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he's not looking for him, and at an hour that he's not aware of, and will cut him in two and appoint him in the portion with the unbelievers. What's going on here? Well, this passage is describing a a wicked servant who doesn't care about what his master wants and faithfully serving him. And he's condemned here 
because he begins to beat the servants and he begins to drink and then he becomes drunk. And so if you read it carefully, you see the problem wasn't just his final state of drunkenness, but there was a process involved in becoming drunk. And this cannot be overemphasized uh, too much. You know, people today will say, well, you can drink so long as you don't get drunk. Well, the immediate follow-up question becomes, well, what does it mean to be drunk? And everybody's got a different definition in their mind, and we'll talk more about that maybe in a few minutes. But be drunk here in this passage, this is from Vine's Expository Dictionary, means to make drunk or to grow drunk. And that's what you call an inceptive verb, and it marks the, the process of the state that's that's being expressed in that word. It means to become intoxicated. Mm. So what he's saying is that he was wrong, not just for the final state of drunkenness, but the process that's involved in it. Okay, well, you know, we're just blazing through these scriptures, but uh, because of the amount that's there, it's good for us to just keep going right along. First Peter, uh, Luke chapter 12, there's just some great scriptures that help us understand uh, the depth of this command. There's another one in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Let me read it. It says, And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, I, when I look at that scripture, I know the, the primary teaching there is what I'm supposed to be filled with, but there is that secondary, and it's saying, hey, this is your former way. Don't get drunk. And I wonder if maybe you can uh, elaborate on that phrase and, and what it takes to get drunk. Sure. Well, there's definitely a contrast here. Uh, be filled with the Spirit rather than being drunk with wine. What's not immediately apparent is that this is that same inceptive verb that we read in the last passage. And if we were to literally translate this passage, it would say, do not begin to be drunk with wine. Now, the the interesting thing about this passage and others like it is um, in my own personal conversations with people who want to defend their right to consume alcohol recreationally, socially, they'll say, look, the Bible just says don't be drunk. Now, I know how much I can drink without getting drunk. (laughs) <laughs> the, the first problem is, uh, whose uh, who's definition of drunkenness are we using? And uh, how in the world do you know just how many you can get? Like what your threshold is, unless you've been there and, and done that before. Right. So, <clears throat> but th- they're, they're seeing something that's not in the passage. There's an artificial distinction between being drunk and drinking, which leads up to that state. But the Bible definition of, of drunkenness is a process. So, uh, we could translate the passage, do not become drunk with wine or do not grow drunk with wine. That one's pretty straightforward. You know, you mentioned something, and I'd like to, to maybe highlight it as well. God's definition of drunkenness is not the same as a highway patrolman's definition of drunkenness. You can't sin up to the point of what the United States you know, highway laws have to say or whatever our local municipalities' laws are on... on uh, being drunk and under the influence whenever you drive. Uh, God's laws are different. And so using man's standards to justify your ability to, to participate in an activity is very, very, very dangerous waters to get into. Well, I'm, I want to maybe take us to another one. We, we're, we have eight passages in our notes, and so I'm going to move us along. Um, in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 7, this could be a great Bible chain, by the way. Maybe we should have started off with that. But this would be a great Bible chain for those who are interested in taking notes and having 
just for reference, the bullet points of different scriptures that encourage us to be sober-minded and not to be drunk. But the Bible says in uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 7, For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. Aubrey, that's not really a... I don't see a command there. I mean, why, why should we consider this in our Bible chain on staying sober and not getting drunk? Well, this highlights the point that we've been making, and that is that a person who is drunk had to get there somehow. Uh-huh. And this talks about people who get drunk, and they arrive at that, that state of drunkenness. But the passage makes not only the final state of drunkenness sinful, but the process of getting there is also sinful. You, you have to ask the question, how does a person get drunk? Well, according to this passage, a person gets drunk by drinking alcohol for non-medicinal purposes. Right, right. Well, these scriptures definitely are working together in that way. I'm feeling encouraged by them uh, that the process is just as important as the final result. Maybe let's look at another one. It's uh, Acts 24, verse 25. And again, we may not find... uh, drunkenness in all of these verses, but we are going to find a pattern and a connection. It says in Acts 24, 25, Now as Paul reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. So in this passage, Paul is preaching the gospel, and he includes the importance of righteousness and self-control and the fact that there's a judgment to come. Uh, Whatever he preached was powerful because Felix became afraid. But he includes self-control. So this idea of self-control is central to preaching the gospel, and it's something that is the Christian's responsibility. It's not something that God's going to do for you. That's why it's called Mm self-control. But here's a point we've been hinting at for the last few verses. The very first drink of alcohol is the one that begins to affect a person's ability to make good, rational, sound judgment. So we've kind of talked about drunkenness and tried to um, get past this idea that it's a a final state that you arrive at, and we've said it's a process. And I think you could uh, show that very easily by just kind of going through the continuum. You know, before a person is stumbling around and dizzy, there's sort of a series of uh, symptoms that they might manifest before their speech becomes slurred, before their vision becomes blurry, uh, a person's inhibitions and their ability to make good sound judgments is basically destroyed. And so the Bible um, teaches some things explicitly. There are some thou shalt and thou shalt nots. And another way of Bible teaching, with, which is just as valid, is implicit Bible teaching. Right. And I want the listener to understand that Every single Bible verse that calls Christians to practice Mm self-control is a Bible verse that condemns the non-medicinal use of alcohol because it destroys our ability to do just that, to control ourselves and make rational judgments. You know, there are uh, commercials um, for, you know, alcoholic beverages that say something like, drink responsibly, or right. know when to say when. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, the problem of that is that the more a person drinks, the less likely they are to know when to stop, because right. their judgment is impaired with, with every single drink that they take. Well, let's maybe consider another one. Uh, I think we're on a roll here, so let's try to get through these six, or these eight passages, rather, because I bet there's somebody out there who has an objection, and I bet maybe somebody is wondering... 
Uh, I'll just throw one out right off the bat. What about Jesus changing water into wine? You know, they've got these questions in their mind. They may be listening to the scriptures, but then they have some things. So we're going to get to that. But in order to get there, we're, we're continuing to establish this foundation of living it with sobriety and self-control and righteousness and putting off the lack of that. And so I want to look at uh, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 25. And it says, And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Now you're not going to find anything in there about drunkenness per se, but there is a word in there that's very interesting, the word temperate. What's going on there? Well, again, this is one of those passages that implicitly teaches against uh, drinking alcohol. And it's not just that it teaches against that, it's teaching um, the, the positive contrast to that, that we should exercise self-control. In fact, this verb, um, temperate, is self-control. Uh, and we saw that in Acts chapter uh, 24 and verse 25. Mm-hmm. So this passage is saying to exercise self-restraint, so ironically, this passage that teaches us to do the very thing that alcohol renders us incapable of doing is one that people will use to justify it. They'll say, look, we're supposed to be temperate. And that, that just means all things in moderation you can drink so long as you exercise self-control. And we've showed, I think, that that's um, a self-defeating statement. Those two things right. are mutually exclusive because alcohol, by definition, destroys a person's ability to control himself. And there's other passages that uh, support this one. I think about Leviticus 10, verse 9 and 10. Uh, this was to the, the priests that were going to be serving um, in the tabernacle or temple. And in verse 9, it says, Do not drink wine or intoxicating drink. You nor your sons with you when you go into the tabernacle of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations that you may distinguish between holy and unholy and between unclean and clean, and that you may teach the children of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them by the hand of Moses. And then they didn't even keep that command because later in Isaiah uh, we see that the priests erred specifically on alcohol. Isaiah 28, 7, uh, but they also have erred through wine and through intoxicating drink are out of the way. The priest and the prophet have erred through intoxicating drink. They are swallowed up by wine. They are out of the way through intoxicating drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. What an amazing conclusion, even though the command was quite simple, just to stay away from it. That's right. And these are Old Testament passages, Jonathan, and it was to the priesthood for a specific reason, but you just very clearly described the underlying cause. God uh, knows the effect of alcohol uh, when it's consumed by a human body. And because it causes us to stumble in our judgment, that precept uh, remains uh, binding in the New Testament. And not just because it was written in Leviticus or in the book of Isaiah, but because of some of the New Testament passages we've written. But the fact is the nature of alcohol and our, our body's response to it has not changed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's wrong and it, it's illogical. It just doesn't make any sense to argue about being temperate in drinking. Well, it makes me think of, uh, can I use that excuse in other things? You know, what if I, what if I want to be a temperate luster? Right. Yeah. (laughs) What if I want to be a temperate liar or a temperate, you know, uh, wrathful person? I just want to beat up my neighbor a little bit. I don't want to beat him up all the way, but I'll just, you know, 
give them a good once-over. That doesn't make sense. No, temperance can only be exercised on things that are lawful to begin with. Right, right. Okay, well, let's, uh, let's consider 1 Peter 5, verse 8. So we're back to Peter. And uh, he, we, we've already mentioned one of his scriptures. We're going to mention this one. It says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Again, maybe it's uh, the soberness here is greater than only talking about alcohol, but it's talking about being aware. But definitely drinking alcohol takes away from the sobriety of that scripture, doesn't it? Absolutely. And, and this, along with other passages that we've mentioned about uh, vigilance and, and temperance and self-control, is one of those that um, just implicitly and clearly teaches that the Christian shouldn't even uh, have one drink. Uh, every passage in the New Testament about sobriety or being sober is a passage that condemns the non-medicinal drinking of alcohol. Mm-hmm. It's it's interesting to me, John. This word "sober" here just you know means to have a, a clear mind. Well, it it is not only applied to the person who's not under the influence of alcohol, but isn't it interesting that this is the exact word we use to describe somebody who's not under the influence? I mean, those are those are two opposites. Are you under right. the influence? Right. Or are you sober? Mm-hmm. And and we understand that you can't be both at the same time. Now, alcohol is just one of many things that might cause us to lose our sobriety. Right. But it's definitely the poster child for substances that will cause a person to lose the ability to be sober. And very clearly here, Peter says, be sober. You know, I use this, this scripture and this concept. We may be kind of going down a rabbit hole here. But I use it with the recreational use of uh, narcotics that... Maybe people have access to for medical reasons. If they kind of hoard those and then want to use them later to maybe feel good one evening after work, or maybe they just are able to pursue some of these drugs uh, recreationally. Our states may be passing legislation that legalize marijuana or other drugs. That doesn't make it right in the eyes of God. If you're losing your sobriety to these things for the simple uh, pleasure of losing sobriety to get the weight of the world off of your chest for the evening or you know just trying to kick back and have fun with some friends you're not being sober sober minded or uh, temperate as the scriptures have said previously some people use the passage that I'm about to mention as an excuse or a validation for drinking and uh, the the idea of taking a little wine for thy stomach's sake becomes the license to uh, drink however much you want, just so long as you don't get drunk. But I think whenever we put it in this Bible chain of reasons why we should abstain from alcohol, this one is definitely helpful to understand that there are times whenever there's a medicinal use. So we're going to look at 1 Timothy 5.23, and it says, No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. Can you maybe give some context to Paul's teaching here? Sure, and I think this is an important passage, as you've mentioned, because for the person who's honestly trying to understand the Bible's teaching on this, this this question is kind of a conundrum. They they say, well, you're saying don't even take a drink, and this passage says you can use a little. Furthermore, I think people want to know that we're being consistent. Uh, People want to be consistent in their beliefs and their arguments, and so a person might say, well, did you know that in the -the over-the-counter you know, medicine that you take, cough syrup or whatever, there are certain amounts of of alcohol. So is that wrong? 
Well, this is the passage that authorizes uh, the medicinal use of alcohol. Paul says, use a little. He doesn't say drink some. He says, use a little for your stomach's sake and mm-hmm. your frequent infirmity. So it's, he's clearly talking about um, medicinal use, not social drinking. But uh, I think to give some context, you remember Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4 and 12 to be an example of the believers, an example right. to the believers in word and conduct, yeah. spirit and faith and purity uh-huh. and all that. Well, come to find out here, Timothy is drinking only water. Now, one of the things this passage does is it shows that the the claim that people have made over the years that uh, in, in Bible days they couldn't drink water because there was just no right. clear drinking water. <laughs> so they only had wine and you couldn't preserve it. Uh, so almost all the stuff they drank was alcoholic wine. Right. Uh, it shows that that's not true because Timothy was drinking only water, Paul right. says. And so he was certainly not drinking intoxicating drinks because Paul now has to give him special instructions to use a little wine, but it could only be for medicinal purposes. And so this mm-hmm. this begs the question, okay, if Christians of the first century were already drinking a little wine, you know, socially or non-medicinally, then why did Paul need to give these instructions to Timothy to begin with? Why did he have to ensure him that it would be okay to use a little for medicinal purposes if he already knew it was okay to drink socially? Right, and there's such a, a difference between drinking a little wine for this medicinal use and then what is commonly consumed uh, by people around us today. Well, this hopefully this Bible chain is encouraging uh, for people who are looking for scriptures to help advocate uh, for abstinence from alcohol, to try to, to live a sober lifestyle. Maybe the temptation comes from the drink itself. Maybe the temptation comes from the company that you would keep when friends are drinking and you, you, you are tempted because you, you seek that friendship as well. Hopefully these will be encouraging and inspiring to overcome those temptations. But in the back of people's minds are probably some objections. I've, I've had conversations about some of these, and I'm sure you have as well. So maybe I'd like to assume that role now. So I will uh, state these objections, and I'd like to hear from the Scriptures and from reason why they're not as uh, maybe as valid as, as people might think. All right, well, that was eight Scriptures to consider about abstinence from alcohol and why the New Testament teaches that Christians just need to stay away from the stuff altogether. For those who may have some objections to these scriptures or the reasoning that comes from these scriptures, I invite you to tune in next week where we'll continue in this discussion. We will consider some of the main objections that people raise whenever we discuss the idea of abstaining from alcohol entirely. So please come back next week and hear the follow-up to this study. Until then, you can go to the website. There's a ton of resources for you to use. I'd love for you to download them all absolutely free. Until next time, this is Jonathan Edwards. Always remember... God loves you very much, and I do too. Lord willing, see you soon. Well, I'm here to tell you a story, a story that is true, about a judge by the name of Gideon. He was a man like me.